0: Right now, and this is a joy, we're going to rip up the script. Mark McCormick joins us. He has been absolutely brilliant on dollar resiliency, global head of VFX Strategy at TD. And yes, we'll talk about euro and we'll talk about the U.S. dollar, the president with 1130, talking about fiscal America. But what I want to talk to Mark McCormick about is the fun and joy when the facts change, I change. And yesterday, Mark McCormick, you got a love note from the Bank of Canada that the facts had changed. What is it like on the TD desk when the facts change, as you saw from the Bank of Canada?
1: Yeah, thanks. The uh, the interesting bit is uh, most of us aren't on the floor anymore, so it's it's taking the facts as they come in from from work-from-home offices. But, you know, what you saw from the market is is what I think people are really focused on is what the Bank of Canada and what the Bank of England have done is they're pulling things forward. And I think what the markets are really focused on is what's the R star, what's the terminal rate? How do these cycles evolve over the next year, year and a half versus who moves first and who moves fastest? And so what we know right now in the G10 is the Norges Bank, the RBNZ, the Bank of England, the Bank of Canada are first and they're primary. And the Bank of Canada basically said to Stirk traders yesterday, April is a live meeting. What I think matters for the FX market, though, is really how does the how does the rate cycle evolve over the next year, which actually hasn't changed. So I think that's a big dynamic, especially if we look at the Bank of England. Um, You know, we've priced them in the fastest over the last six weeks or so. But again, are you going to see much more than two or three hikes in, in a year? And we've already priced that in. So that's a big element of whether or not these moves are sustainable uh for some of these other currencies on the central bank trade
2: so Mark, let's just go through what's been priced in bank of england moves first bank of canada follows then the federal reserve ecb coming in dead last is that basically entirely priced in to uh currency markets at this point
1: absolutely and i think when you think about it as well like the first one in here was the norges bank so i think you know what you have to think about in the context of this is we've got central banks uh what we call the hikers We've got basically growth divergence, which we call the growers. We've got the miners, which is basically your terms of trade. And we've also got positioning evaluation. So those four factors is what's driving FX. And so if you've got a negative view on the terms of trade shock, which was bad for Asia and bad for Europe, and a rotation outside of that, where we don't get another 25% jump in oil prices in the fourth quarter, then Norway is really kind of vulnerable to This environment, given how much excess has been priced in. And the Euro, you know, give or take positioning, Euro positioning short, but Euro should be trading around 115, 114.50 on our high frequency models. You basically have an environment here where euro knocky could rally kind of reversing some of that. And you could also see Euro sterling starting to, to come off the lows because the Bank of England's been fully priced in. And we're actually long uh, dollar CAD because we don't think the Bank of Canada dynamics changes some of those other forces that we're talking about in terms of, you know, growth divergence, terms of trade and what's all uh, currently priced in.
2: So, Mark, the short term is easier than the long term, right? The short term is who hikes first is a competition where you kind of have that horse race going on. Longer term, it is a much harder story, and it's difficult to see one economy diverge meaningfully from another when it comes to growth <laughs> and inflation. How much is the idea of a flattening yield curve indicating a global policy error that's going to affect the ECB, that's going to affect the Euro region, even if they hike last? Basically, that one's central bank cannot escape another and that the currencies are sort of toggling a lot around this reality.
1: Yeah, it's a great point because we've got kind of three, I guess you call them flation themes. You got stagflation, reflation. And, <laughs> you know, the, the word that no one wants to talk about is deflation. But there is an element here that the bearish flattening of yield curves is suggesting that monetary policy around the world two-year front end rates, whether it's U.S. or non-U.S., You know, first, what we've seen is a non-U.S. average of emerging markets in G10 has ripped about 50 basis points in the last... month or so higher, U.S. yields are, are finally following. They're up about 15, 20 mm-hmm, basis right. points. But there's an element here that the worry is bearish flattening is indicative of weakening growth, and you, know, you can okay, see some Mark, yield curves have flattened.
0: i got to interrupt. This is too, too important, folks. We're going to go mathier, and I can do that with McCormick, ex-Bloomberg. Mark, are you suggesting, mm-hmm. for example, with a 10-year U.S. real yield, we have a fan distribution of outcomes that leads us to a persistent – constantly negative real yield.
1: Exactly, yeah, your skew is biased negatively. Um, So your 10-year real rate is, you know, essentially if we think about it in fair value terms, maybe has, you know, 20, 25 basis points to move higher. But if we go back to the taper tantrum, we had a 100 basis point move because we had a three standard deviation mispricing on real rates. We don't have exactly. That same. Well,
0: Mark, I, again, I don't want to interrupt, but this is absolutely critical. Answer the question then, which is simple with a three standard deviation move. How does this filter through the American financial system?
1: Well, I guess uh, the big part of it is real rates, the plumbing of risk premium and the plumbing of interest rates stays at very accommodative levels. And if you look at it, a global. Uh, version of financial com- conditions weighted by global GDP is still the most accommodative it has been in the last 15 years. So the the under, you know, the plumbing of the financial system, you know, while we're talking about how many central banks have hiked rates and, you know, where we're removing stimulus, we are still an emergency stimulus measure and real rates are still very accommodative for reflation, which is a theme that I think should still probably do quite well in the first part of next year, uh, especially since we're not looking for a Fed hike uh, until 2023, which again would keep real rates at bay as we see short term inflation rising, uh, but essentially decelerating into 2022.
0: Mark, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Mark McCormick with us uh, here today. we got a mystery guest coming yes. up here in a moment, which is the trophy taker for. The Institutional Investor Survey. And I say this insiders, with great Tom, respect. And insiders, Tom, we say I.I. I. I, I, I,
3: okay, <laughs> The
0: I, I
4: survey. And
0: I say this with great respect for the late Fred Wiegold, who was a great mentor of mine here at Bloomberg, who helped invent the Wall Street Journal survey. Yep. Which separates earnings guessing from more of a thoughtful view of the companies. Right. The I.I. I survey, Paul, a beauty contest? It's
3: actually a reflection of what institutional investors, how they value the sell side. And as a former sell side analyst, it was the number one uh, goal for an analyst back in the day. I'm not sure how much it's valued today, but back in the day, it made or broke careers. And it it comes out every October. Literally,
0: I can't convey, for those of you not on Global Wall Street, the sweat factor of this announcement. I was on the phone once with a winner who had to go to decide on three job offers. Yep. Literally. Yep. He said, "Tom, I have to go. I've got one call and two calls coming in." <laughs> That's right. In a bidding war. <laughs> exactly. You know, I, I I can't remember what he did. I think he went and sold surfboards in California, but the <laughs> the bottom line is it's completely uh 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 completely part of the Wall Street heritage. Dennis DeBuscher joins us now with 22V Research for years with Edward S. Hyman at Evercore ISI. And he is the number one strategist this year. Congratulations. For institutional investor. Uh, Dennis, on behalf of the Academy, (laughs) congratulations. (laughs) What did you do afterwards? Watch the Knicks, what'd you do? Well, one, thanks so
5: much. And two, um, we know it's uh, not a beauty contest because here I am on the radio show.
0: um, Very good. (laughs) Dennis, I look at uh, this, and it's it's a lot of hard work, and it's getting it right. <laughs> On a type two basis, what did you what did you not do wrong? Forget about what you got right? What did you avoid in getting this huge acclaim? Oh
5: well, thank you, and it's a great question uh, to ask. I think the thing that uh, we avoided was chasing the narrative du jour and providing some type of way to think about how the macro backdrop and particularly i keep coming back to this the narrative is changing and how investors should think about that not necessarily you know how they should be focused on whatever's coming out on twitter or whatever headline is coming out that could indicate some massive change in trend which is something you know you'll probably be aware of we're going through the, over the last few days with this yield curve flattening so going through another one of these periods of trying to help people understand That and how to think about it as opposed to making some great call. What we didn't do is chase any big change in trend too aggressively.
3: What is your market call right now, Dennis?
5: Yeah, good question. So we're biased higher in the market. You know, I think we think fair value is up at the 4,700 range. Doesn't mean we have to get there by the end of this year. Um, The way we come to that is basically your implied earnings yield on stocks relative to risk-free rates. You assume a little bit higher in 10-year yields and earnings come in roughly where they're expected to come in over the next three to five years and cash returns stay about where they are. You've got a little bit higher on, on the market. Uh, not that exciting of a call, quite frankly. I think all the interest in the market right now is internals. That's where we focus. So it's sectors and factors. And as you guys know, I mean, there's a lot of macro volatility right now. And the narratives are just kind of really, you know, uh, exasperating that. And that's creating some opportunities on the internals that we think are very interesting.
3: Dennis, a lot of folks are concerned about valuation in this market. Yes, the 10-year, you know, is at 1.56%, so that gives me a little bit of comfort. But, you know, I need earnings to come through in a big way. And it's so far in this third quarter, they've been pretty darn good. How do you feel about valuation? How Do you, do you think this market is earning its way into the multiple?
5: Yeah, I think it's, it's clearly earning its way into the market. 89% of companies are beating. Um, We're on the back end of a profit boom. People really got this PPI versus CPI um, spread wrong, i.e. if, uh, you know, uh, CPI is lagging PPI, that means markets contract. It's just not true. PPI is very positively correlated with the corporate value add. Uh, Wages lag. So, you know, we've had a profit boom, and we are working into that multiple. From here, it gets a little bit tougher. But here's the important point. I was just looking at it today. So 10-year yields minus inflation expectations. Negative 160 basis points. Real high yield rates on an implied basis are almost close to zero. So I know nobody likes the Tito argument. I, like, I know that everybody likes to make fun of it. But we look at the cash return right. and cash flow of these big cap tech names relative to other things. It's the same old story we've been telling for the last five, ten years.
0: What's your five-year view? I want you to go all Evercore ISI on me as you start <laughs> 22V. I mean, what, what, what's your five-year view on equity ownership, stock ownership?
5: My five-year view is much lower return than the previous cycle, somewhere in the 4 to 6% range per year.
0: Okay. Dennis, thank you so Congratulations. I
5: mean, thank you just, so much.
0: Just absolutely superb. Greatly, greatly appreciated. Dennis DeBuscher with us uh, uh, this morning, uh, winning the II survey with 22V Research, former Evercore strategist as yep. well. Just amazing.
3: Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it's... The interesting thing—it's something going out on your own to start your own firm. Uh, it's what a better—you couldn't get a better time to do that after winning the the number one slot on II gives you just some, you know, incremental street cred, as they say.
0: Lee Ferris joins, head of macro strategy. For North America at State Street. Lee, is the glass half full or half empty as we look at American GDP at 830?
4: I think when it comes to GDP, um, sadly it's half empty. I think this was meant to be the big reopening phase, you know, Q three. Expectations at the start of this quarter were, you know, this was gonna be a seven percent quarter you know, as things really got back on stream. And, and now we're looking at a median of, what, 2.5%? Atlanta Fed saying 05 which I think is on the low side. But but even so, it, it's a far cry from where the expectations were at the start of this quarter. And it really shows what, what Delta has done and the supply side constraints you were talking about, what they've done to activity.
0: Are we at a point, Lee, where, and I think of the great Bettina Dalton at Fidelity years ago, where all that matters is domestic final sales. And that country to country, and here talking about the US, that we see the export import mystery and the China mystery so great that all we can fall back on is US domestic final sales.
4: I think there's a point to that. Yeah, I I think that's a fair point, Tom. I think, you know, at the moment, we're trying to gauge the strength of the domestic economy you know, with supply chains, with all the stuff at the ports, with, you know, with everything else going on, you know, the the, the sort of external sector of the economy is sort of something we can't control. Right. Um, so, yes, I think there is a, a a valid point that we should be looking at final sales to domestics. Um, and that's a better gauge of where we are in terms of the the bigger picture and the reopening The other stuff, yeah. I mean, there's so many moving parts right now in in the global economy and the U.S. that that it's hard to really gauge where we are. I don't think we get a clear picture till next year. I'll be absolutely honest with you. Okay,
2: Lee, who is glass half empty, right? I mean, you look out at stocks. They're hitting new highs. You look out at bonds. They're doing all right. There is a bearish tilt there. Who has it wrong with how bearish they are in terms of U.S. growth?
4: Well, Lisa, you're assuming there's a relationship between asset prices and the real economy. Surely that, <laughs> surely that broke years ago.
2: Um, <laughs> okay, well said. Carry on.
4: So, I mean, here's the thing, right? So, so, you know, low growth now, more support from policy. You know, Fed, you know, you talked about at the top of the show about, about how much is getting priced in in, the, in Europe, in the U.S. as well. We have virtually two hikes priced in next year now for the U.S., after this this round of sort of tightening in the market over the last week or two. So, isn't weaker data actually pushes out that scenario. And we know that policy has been the big driver of asset prices.
2: Wait, hold on a second, Lee. This is really key. Are you saying that we are still in an environment where bad news is good news in terms of markets?
4: Yes. The longer we get the policy support... Then the better for markets. The longer that policy support is there, as long as the economy is not going through recession or anything disastrous, but, but if things are delayed, if we're going on the right path, but at a slower pace, which means the policy support persists for longer, Still positive for markets, yes. Overall, yeah, because more policy support. But
6: what you're seeing in the bond market is the anticipation that policy support will not persist for longer. We're seeing a pulling forward of expectations on when the tightening starts across the world. It's already started in some places and the equity market's still resilient. So is that not a mismatch?
4: Yes, I I mean, there's no doubt there's a lot of mismatches going on at the moment. I mean, the the fact is, you know, look at the curve shapes though, right? So so we Mm -hmm. brought forward these rate hikes but then if you look at the, the, the longer end, yields have actually dropped back down. So what yeah. we've seen is this massive curve flattening. So, you know, it's sort of, we're sort of mixed between the two at the moment in so much as, as, as we're bringing forward these rate hikes on the back of the inflation numbers. But actually, when we look at policy over the long term, we expect it to stay easy.
6: OK, so let's talk about that curve flattening. 530s right now, 75 basis points between the two. Has that been overdone?
4: Yes, I think it's tough, but I think it's more to that do at the exciting. short end. That the, the rates going up, I think, is, is the bigger issue. I don't think central banks are going to act as hawkishly as anywhere near as what the market is sort of projecting at the moment, particularly the sort of G3. Now, some of the commodity exporters, Bank of Canada we saw yesterday, yes, they can be more aggressive. They're getting tailwinds from these commodity prices in their domestic economies. But commodity importers generally uh, and the G3 economies I don't think they're going to deliver anywhere near what the market's pricing. So I would say that yeah, the flattening's been overdone, but it's been overdone because short end rates have gone up too far, rather than long end rates coming to down too far.
0: Very good, Lee Farage. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. With State Street, head of macro strategy. What we're doing here, away from bond market shenanigans, is really looking at the tech juggernaut and how it folds over into the rest of the stock market. Katrina Dudley at Franklin was iconic at Federated for her analysis of technology, and we're thrilled she could join us uh, with Franklin Mutuals uh, today. Katrina, I want to talk about something as basic CFA1 of persistency of free cash flow. Do we massively misjudge the generation of cash and the use of it for shareholders?
7: Um, if I take a look at free cash, it's one of the key metrics that you have to look at at a company in terms of you know, assessing the, the stability or assessing the sustainability of their competitive advantage. We're value investors, but we spend a lot of time looking at cash. We take it from the net income level and we look at what are all the people that need to get paid, um, you know, the legacy restructuring right. charges. Yeah, so there's so many things um, and so many parts of that cash flow statement that people just completely ignore. Um, so I think that people also very much get confused about a resilient net income number and they forget about looking whether or not that is a resilient free cash okay. flow number.
0: So, so I, I love that you're going all Graham Dot and coddle on me. Lisa, that's the iconic <laughs> textbook out of Columbia from a million years ago. Mm. Katrina's read six volumes of it. Forget about it. Move up the income statement and can you partition the text- juggernaut over the rest of American industry? Do we just simply underestimate in this great bull market the ability to make profit?
7: Um, I think in a tech bull market, what people are now really focused on is the sustainability of that profit stream over a long period of time. And we're also focusing on the role that interest rates and inflation are going to play, because when you have such high multiples of earnings, which a number of these tech stocks are trading on, or you have stocks that are actually not even trading on earnings, they're trading at 30 times sales. You know, interest rates become something that's very, very sensitive, because on a DCF valuation, you're looking at those terminal values and rising rates and negative.
2: Well, Katrina, this really goes to the heart of the question of the US versus Europe, where there's a greater tech dominance, excuse me, in the United States versus Europe. And there also is this feeling that there is a different, more stagflationary-like kind of headwind facing Europe. Is the cash persistency of European companies different than that of the US?
7: So, the, Europe doesn't have the same level of technology companies, but it does have a number of very strong companies there, from a Cap Gemini to a Software AG. Um, SAP is another big juggernaut. I think most companies can't function without an SAP supply chain solution. So, I think that Europe does have a great constitution of technology companies, but it's not the dominant force or a dominant percentage of their markets. What they do have is luxury stocks, which are the, the tech stocks of Europe, when you think of the... Louis Vuitton's, um, you know, Cartier and all of those very strong brands. And that is the technology equivalent in Europe. Um, I would say, however, that those brands have got a lot longer longevity. They've been around for multiple, you know, new centuries often. Um, and so their ability to generate free cash flow has been tested time and time again. And the stability of those franchises, I think, is probably something that you as an investor can kind of put away and, uh, and you kind of wake up in 100 years and the stock will still be there.
2: Are investors, global investors, underestimating the power of a more dovish ECB
7: relative to the rest of the world when it comes to equity performance? So some of the, the you've obviously had a lot of hawkish comments coming out of the BOE, the Bank of England, um, and, and some commentary out of the Fed as well. So people are saying that you know, there's some hawkish pressure on the ECB. Um, however, from a dovish side, we've had the bank lending survey, which came out recently and showed that there's been increasing you know pullback in lending or a tightening of credit standards. And you combine that with a, a small rise in nominal yields. And we've already starting to see some signs of tightening before the ECB's done anything. So um, we've got a, a number of programs the ECB has. Um, they, they're they they're going until March of next year. We're also expecting an announcement in December from the ECB. Um, obviously, they've got the their, their meeting today, but uh, you, you'll, you'll get that December meeting, which we're expecting some big announcements. Um, mm-hmm. As I look over to Europe, though, let's just compare and contrast Europe with the United States and, and the positioning of two of the central banks. You know, the, the inflation concerns in the U.S. are much greater than that they are over in Europe. Um, and so, you know, the supply chain pressures exist in Europe, but I don't think we've seen the same type of tightness in the supply chain um, in European markets. I don't think you've had the ports as much being an issue there. The second thing is that the labor market is the other element of the inflation equation. And Europe's labor market has been quite sluggish. Um, you know, you just mm-hmm. need to look at the German public sector workers. They were asking for a percent rate, um, you know, wage hike, and it looks like it may not go through. So you've got, I think, a lot less pressure in the ECB. Um, the economy came out um, a lot you know, behind the U.S. So I think they're also you know, taking the advantage of that and are going to watch what the Fed's doing and then they'll act later.
6: Well, talking of inflationary and labor pressures for U.S. companies, we just had Caterpillar earnings crossing the Bloomberg terminal. Big surprise to the upside. They beat on EPS by something like 20 percent, coming in at 266 a share. And I'm just looking through the press release, and they talk about unfavorable manufacturing costs because of higher labor costs, higher freight costs, higher material costs, and yet sales were really strong, therefore they were able to offset that or withstand that to some degree. Did we grossly underestimate the ability of companies to do that?
7: I think that's a company-by-company decision. I think you're really paying so much attention to this. You have rising costs on one side, and I think that we've been overly focused on those rising costs. But companies can handle rising costs if they can also get the pricing for it. And I think that's what you're seeing with the Caterpillar. They have had those rising costs. But going back to brand name, what construction worker doesn't want to have a yellow piece of cat equipment that they're riding
5: on? (laughs)
7: Yep, exactly. Got it. people tattoo caterpillar down their leg you know i mean it's just an <laughs> iconic brand name and, and and in this case i think you've got the, the power of the brand gives you the power of pricing
6: be careful katrina or tom's going to roll up to bloomberg uh-huh. headquarters on, on a i'm out in central on park every, every weekend
0: tomorrow. on my cat He's <laughs> yeah. showing his tattoo puppy <laughs> we're moving the trees around continue kaylee
6: Oh, now I'm just distracted by that image in my head. If someone oh, wants to Photoshop it and put it on Twitter,
0: please, please do. Please feel free. With
6: the tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> but Okay, so Katrina, talking about maybe supply chain bottlenecks, easing, all of these things. We heard from the automakers as well, Ford, Stellantis, VW, kind of saying that the worst of it is over. If the worst of it is over, if margins can then expand, if some of these supply chain issues uh, are no longer an issue, does that just mean the bull market rolls on and we can continue to climb higher and higher, solely on the basis of earnings, even if growth starts to slow?
7: Um, if growth starts to slow but earnings keep going, you're right. The market should continue to appreciate because it is very much a reflection of the underlying earnings of the companies. Um, in terms of the supply chain, I think what we're seeing is the early parts of the supply chain are starting to get a little more room in them, and that will ultimately work its way all the way through the supply chain. Um, but there are a number of parts where there's still weak, there's still tightness, and you know some of these are, are so interconnected. So think about logistics costs. Um, you know we use Used to when we were short on components, we'd air freight them into the factory, and that would speed everything up. Well, because we haven't had flights, we don't have belly space, we don't have the ability to do that. So um, I think that some of the logistics stocks' costs will be you know higher for longer, but I think some of the component prices, you're right, I think we've been able to build a little more buffer into it yeah. um, in terms of, you know, and so it, it, the question is, if you've got companies that have gone out with the pricing equation on, uh, you just need to cover my higher costs, the risk on that price increase in there is that the companies get pushed back on the other side. So I think you've really got to understand the stickiness of those price increases, because if they're not sticky, you may not get the earnings growth that you expect.
0: Katrina, thank you for the clinic. Katrina Dudley with Franklin Mutual today as we look at use of cash. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening.